once again, wrestling fans. This is Seth, a.k.a. Xandra, here with another edition of Classic Wrestling Memories. We're kind of dusting out the cobwebs here in the studio, so I do appreciate all the patience your listeners have had for us and the kind things I've seen that you've said in the reviews in Apple Podcasts and such. So we promise to do our best to keep up the quality that you expect from us. And we've been meaning to do this show for a while, almost exactly six months now. Heck, we probably wanted to do a show on this man probably since we started doing these shows. We're here to talk about the late, great Pat Patterson, who passed away in December of 2020 at the age of 79. And fortunately, once again, I don't have to do it alone. Joining me from the nice half-batted cell in South Kakalaki, Crazy Train, Jonathan Bullock. All aboard, wrestling fans. Yeah, this is partly my re- partly my fault for the delay. I've had internet issues. I've had some craziness at my work. As we record this, my oldest son graduated from high school today, so life goes on. Thankful transparency. A lot of the stars that we do these tribute shows on, obviously we, we tend to do them, unfortunately, when they pass away. You need to know, since we started doing this show, was it four years now? Five years, Seth? Approximately, yeah. A lot of the guys that we've done tributes to after they've passed, we had talked about in the early days of doing a show dedicated to them, and then other things came up, and then kind of our hand was forced once they passed away. We also talked about that when we do a tribute show over a recently lost wrestling star, it's often not right away. And if I'm wrong, Seth, disagree with me, please. We both feel that, there's enough stuff out there right after one of these these individuals passes away that we don't need to like super duper rush to get to it. I mean, all due respect to Dave Meltzer, his obituaries on these stars are incredible. And he usually releases them within days of their passing. So it's not like this pertinent information is not out there. I, I don't want to cheapen uh, a, a fallen brother or sister's accomplishments in the wrestling business just for clickbait, so to speak. I'd rather take the time to talk to some old-timers if I didn't know the individual, for Seth to do his research, which I know he loves doing, and really be prepared to do one of these shows justice. Some are easier than others. When we did our Harley show, when we did our Wahoo show, those were easy for me. I knew both those gentlemen, especially Wahoo, whereas somebody like Pat, I I, I met Pat twice in my life. So I don't have the the intimate personal knowledge of, of Pat that I did of the, some of these other guys. So we just feel it's the best thing to take our time, get it right, and and give you the best product we can. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you echo those sentiments, Seth. Yeah, and I can say as being a, a fan of video games and such, now granted I'm more of an old school gamer than the newer stuff, but I, I remember all the times hearing about games being delayed because of updates ha- happening to them. And I always took the the view of, well, I'd rather wait and have a better game as a result than get something out right away that could have been done better. And I think it's kind of a similar it's a thing. a broken game. Yeah, broken yeah, game. Right. In, in this case, we we probably could have done something sooner, but we wouldn't have gotten in depth with our research and our knowledge as, as we could have. So I it, you know, do apologize for the wait if some of you were waiting quite a while for the show, because this is actually the first yeah. show in 2021 that we've done, and it's in June. And and, I, and a lot of that falls on me and my personal issues more than it has been. Not We've got this and two or three other shows, research done and ready. We just haven't had a chance to record. So. Right, right. So enough with the explanations. Again, thanks, thank you folks for your patience. Uh, let us know if there's anything you want us to talk about or anything we could do better. But without further ado, we're going to dive into the life and career of Pat Patterson. Now, I know that modern fans will likely remember him, meaning Pat Patterson, as being one of the Stooges along with Gerald Briscoe. 
and the previous generation before him might remember as you know the first ever intercontinental champion. The generation before that would probably remember the legendary tag team with Ray Stevens as the Blonde Bombers, and possibly even the generation before that might remember him in Portland for for Don Owens right. Pacific Northwest. So we're talking about you know, what forty years, uh, forty you know, about three yeah. or four generations there. Of people I would that say might have about heard the 30 name. years of active in-ring and then and probably as much, if not more, for his behind-the-scenes creative stuff. Right, right, absolutely. I mean, he truly was a, was a man who entered the business young, like you said, as a teenager, and that was the only job he ever knew at wrestling at some 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 level, some form, something involved with the wrestling business. It's all Pat. It, it, it's, it's, it's cliche to say, but I think it's very apropos with Pat Patterson. He was born to be in the wrestling business, much like Bobby Heenan talked right. about how he felt like he was born to be in the wrestling business, born to be in the wrestling business. Really do. Yeah, I agree. Born in 1941 as Pierre Clement and started his wrestling training as a teenager uh, in Quebec. And he was inspired by Buddy Rogers and Killer Kowalski. So he took kind of the bleach blonde hair of Buddy Rogers on his movesets like the figure four. But he also wore Kowalski-like purple tights. And really, I think early on in his career, I think this would have been probably even before he moved to the States, he kind of had a reputation of making people look good, which is always a trait to have in wrestling business. I would imagine that's one of the first things you learn is how to take care of opponents, right? Oh, yeah. I've often said, contrary to what modern wrestling fans believe, it's more what you can do to make the other guy look good than your offensive moveset and how good you can make yourself look. Uh, I guess the greatest analogy, and this is not to diminish Pat Patterson's ability in that regard, he was one of the best at it. It's universally considered, even if you don't agree with it, you consider him to be in the argument that Ric Flair is the greatest all-around wrestler of all time. Mm-hmm. And there are those that would say Sean, those that would say Brett, and a few other names you might hear thrown in there. Well, what do all of those guys have in common? One of their biggest traits was they were great sellers and bumpers and, and, and made other guys look good. Yeah, so there, there's things that. that Bret Hart does that you might not notice just kind of casually watching. But even if you were to like slow down and take a look and kind of oh, yeah. go step by step, yeah. you'd see stuff that Bret Hart does that other people might oh, not do. One of my favorite Bret Hart spots is, is how he will take that, that the turnbuckles chest first mm, yes, and, and sell his chest. Yeah, sell and it no, like he got hit by a truck. And unless you've hit those your turnbuckles, you don't understand how hard they are, okay? And the thought of hitting him sternum first like he did, ow. And right. he hit it hard, too. And Flair, the, the drop into the knees, no, I'm begging off. That's a Flair trait. Uh, one of my favorites is uh, Kurt Henning. He would do that that spot where he would, like, leap over the top and clip his toe. And I say clip with air quotes. And then do that ass over tea kettle, like, flop into the ring. And then then, then get up like, well, how'd that happen? Yeah. But he was making the other guy look good. It's yeah. all making the other guy look good. And Kurt Hennig is on our list of careers to do. Don't don't worry, folks, if you want to hear oh, yeah, about yeah, Kurt yeah, Hennig. He just a matter of time. Yeah, he is. So Pierre Clement realizes that the name Pierre Clement or Clement, I'm, I'm, I might be mispronouncing it. I'm assuming it would be the French take on it. So it might be like Clement. But he was... Well, you're, you're, not a, you're now a native French speaker, so you, we'll forgive you. <laughs> He knew that that name wasn't very, shall we say, interesting, so he adopted the name Pat Patterson. I think he said he liked the name Pat, and then Patterson just kind of came, I think, at random, something, something like just kind of going with surnames. I forget the exact story and how he got the last name Patterson, but it was it, it was original. Nobody gave him that name. It wasn't a promoter that gave him that name. He came up with that name himself, probably, well, I would think, because it's easy to remember. Even in French-speaking Canada, I, I feel Pat Patterson is much more marketable than Pierre Clement. Right. Just my opinion, but... Yeah. So while he was training in Quebec, 
he impressed a young, and by young, I guess uh, I should say more like a, a 30-ish Maurice Vachon, a.k.a. Mad Dog Vachon, and then moved to Boston to be in his mm. first territory, which was the show where the promotion was called Big Time Wrestling. And this is one of the things I want to make clear here, because there have been several Big Time Wrestlings. The one that is the most famous was based out of San Francisco, run by mm-hmm. Roy Shire. And we will get to that in, in this episode. But this was Big Time Wrestling in Boston, run by Tony Santos, if I have those names. Yeah, you have, to, uh, yeah you have to realize at this time, point in time, during the territorial days, to the fans, the territory was often whatever the name of their television show was. And I can think of, off the top of my head, I think four different promotions, territories in this era who use Big Time Wrestling as the name of their uh, their television show. One of the ones that comes to my mind you didn't mention would be Detroit with Eddie mm-hmm. Farhat, the Sheik. That was Big Time Wrestling. I think, I believe that Al Tomko, I'm not sure if he was running Vancouver yet at this time or not. I think he might have been. He called the Vancouver British Columbia Wrestling. Their TV show was Big Time Wrestling. So you can see how it could get confusing looking back historically. That If you were to go and talk to a fan of that era, they'd say, oh yeah, I watch Big Time Wrestling. And the person from San Francisco could look at the person from Boston and go start listing wrestlers and go, what are you talking about? I watch big time wrestling too. And none of those guys are on that. <laughs> so, right. Right. I know it's often hard for, for younger fans to wrap their mind around. There was a world before the internet and there was a world before dirt sheets. And right. I mean, what happened in your territory was that's where the, where the sun rose and set was just what happened in your territory. There weren't even after mags. You know what I'm saying? I think really, if there was much, media coverage about wrestling it was probably spots in the sports negative you know and it was negative usually it was jack pfeffer threatening all the other promoters he's going to spill the beans on what wrestling is it was like that (laughs) and and by the way jack pfeffer's probably another tribute and 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 whole show we'll do at some point too but i digress (laughs) right but he moves to boston in 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 the states and my understanding at least according to dave Meltzer, that Pat, like, barely spoke any English. He might not even be able to say a sentence. And here he is moving into the States. now. And he's, somebody, and he's like, what, 17, 18 years old when this happens? Right. And it's Boston. It's not New York. I would imagine going to Boston might be cheaper than, than New York. Yeah, I don't understand why this is. But Pat is in a long line of guys that came out of the French-speaking Canada area. And the first time they come to the States, the first territory they work is Boston. And the only thing I can surmise is the, the bus ticket from, from Quebec or Montreal to, was cheaper to get to Boston. I would think Buffalo would be cheaper, but I don't know. That was a different territory. Who knows? Right. But if you can just picture that here's a teenage Pat Patterson taking his first steps into the world of wrestling, unable to speak English, and one of the first people he meets is Mae Young, Johnny Mae Young. When she's very young, very attractive, very aggressive, and was proud of the fact that she could stretch half the boys in the territory right. <laughs> legitimately. Right, because there are those stories about Mae Young that, yet she was legitimately tough, but she also, I, I'm trying to say this since this is a clean content show, at least we try to make it, that she had a reputation <laughs> of enjoying the male company, so to speak. Yes, yes. I don't want to speak ill of May because she's no longer with us, mm-hmm. but Johnny May. She was a lot ahead of her time. A man in that era who enjoyed the company of ladies would be considered, you know, a stud, an Adonis, a Casanova, whatever. But women, much more so, even somewhat today, but much more so back then, were considered, you know, lewd or or scandalous. And a woman would, I don't think Johnny May cared. Johnny's like, I'm a good-looking young woman, and I'm single, and I like the company of attractive young men. Yeah, agreed. So Pat finds his first work in Boston, 
and built up a reputation there. And that's also in Boston where he met Louis Dondero, who would be his partner, certainly for the rest of Louis's life. So a lot mm-hmm. of essentially what made Pat Patterson began in Boston. I think this is probably as good a time to bring it up as any. Obviously, you cannot talk about Pat Patterson without talking about his sexual orientation. He was not the first, nor will he be the last gay competitor in wrestling. There has always been, I think, there's some confusion as to, oh, he was closeted or people didn't know in the business. And I think that was that idea was exacerbated or magnified even more because of that episode of Legends House he did on the WWE Network where he essentially, quote-unquote, came out of the closet to the rest of the of the Legends. Let me tell you this. If it was a secret, and I don't know because I wasn't in the business at that time, it was the worst-kept secret in the world. Yeah. Everybody knew that Pat was gay. Everybody knew that he and Louie were partners. And everybody loved Louie, okay? Everybody in the business that met Louie speaks glowingly of Louis. They loved Louis because Louis made Pat happy. They were a very loving couple. They were very happy together. And that made other people in the business, even straight people, happy because you want to see your friends happy. And they enjoyed for years, and we'll talk about later the moving around that Pat and Louis did, they lived for years in Florida. And it was a well-known fact that they loved to entertain and, and have guys over whenever the wrestlers were in town and they'd have groups guys over and they liked to, both of them liked to cook and they'd make gourmet meals for the, for the wrestlers and, and, and their, their Gene Okerlund and his wife would go over there all the time and he'd make food for Gene. So it, this, this was the worst kept secret in the business, much in the way that wrestling being a work was, was a secret. It was something everybody in the business knew, but then they tried to kind of kayfabe it to the fans. Right. There's a lot made of that. And I want to tell you someone inside the business that, Maybe we should have been more open to the fans about Pat's, but that's Pat's decision, not ours. And when Pat felt comfortable doing that, he did so. But he didn't do that till many years later, and as that in- active in-ring career was over, and that was Pat's truth. So you must remember, we've talked about who also will get his own whole full show at some point. Jim Barnett was an openly gay man in the wrestling business. My boy. And did, and did not hide this fact from anybody the entire time he was alive, you know. So from day one, everybody knew Jim Barnett was openly gay. Now, granted, he was a promoter, not a wrestler. So there is a different perception, I think, by people outside the wrestling business as to what those two jobs, ent- you know, entail. And rightfully so. But it's so I'm not saying you, you could be openly gay in the wrestling. It was unusual. But, I mean, Jim Barnett is proof that it, there were guys that were openly gay in the wrestling business in that era. And it's just Pat chose not to. And I think, speaking as a straight man who happens to have a lot of gay friends, me being straight really isn't anybody's business either, is it? To me, I've always was raised the idea that what you do behind closed doors is your business. And if you feel f- comfortable sharing that with others, so be it. And Pat's just one of those people that didn't feel comfortable for whatever reason. I'm sure we can all imagine what some of them were until much later in his life. So I, yeah. that's the elephant in the room. If you're going to talk about Pat Patterson, that is inevitably going to come up. So let's just go ahead and get it out of the way now early on, Seth. Don't you agree? Let's, let's get out of the yeah. way. <laughs> yeah. And, and one other thing about that Legends House episode is Pat also had said that 50 years in the business being gay and Gene Oakland, again, like you said, spoke glowingly about, about Louie. And I think it's one of those things, it's better to be said that this was a guy 50 years ago and certainly 
with WWE and such, Vince obviously knew, and, and Vince Sr., so 50, 60 years ago, the wrestling business was employing gay men. They were employing women, employing people of color and such, and featuring them pro- right. prominently on their show. I think that's something that's probably a better thing mm-hmm. to say more so than, oh, well, he was just gay. And, and I, get, I get that there's a feeling that racial stereotypes, homosexual stereotypes, were often portrayed as heels, often portrayed in a negative manner, that the wrestling was behind the time. But I think you make a very valid point, Seth, which is that these all may be true. You will get no argument from me. Wrestling probably needed to do better. And it has, and it still has room to improve, but everything. But the fact that they employed individuals in the era that they did, that, like you said, were of color, homosexual, women, when when other mainstream companies weren't, that says something. I've said before, and I'll say it again, a lot of people outside of wrestling business and the fans of the the sport think wrestling is is extremely backwards, narrow-minded, whatever. Any negative adjective or descriptor you can think of. Lowbrow, all that stuff. Low, yes, I can tell you right now, having been in many, many, many wrestling locker rooms, is one of the most open and accepting environments I have ever been in in my 50 years on this earth. There are every type of individual economic backgrounds, sexual orientation, ethnic background, politics, however you want to d- d- divide people up. I met all those people in wrestling locker rooms and nobody cared. What matters in a wrestling locker is can you do your job? Can you get the reaction out of the fans that you're trying to get? Can you draw money? Can you not hurt people? That's all that matters. I like the quote from Bill Watts, former promoter, probably most famous for uh, UWF. And, of course, he booked WCW for a while. He said he does, the only color he sees in people is green. Yeah. And of course, there's all those accusations about Bill Watts and his racism, yet his best friend was a black man. (laughs) Right. I'm not saying I don't know. I didn't I don't know Bill. I don't know Cowboy. I don't know if he's racist or not. I'm sure some of the things he says and the way he says them probably come across that way to a younger audience, to people my age and Seth's age and a little older than us. Probably not as much because times change. Let me get up on my soapbox again here real quick. Then we'll get back to Pat. I think as a former competitor myself, Part of the reason wrestling has always embraced that more than other lines of work is it is that diverse backgrounds and views of life and the social order of things has led to why wrestling has been able to be successful. You're really taking in a bunch of people's points of view and molding this into something that is a sellable product that the average person can sink their teeth into. And I don't know if that happens in a lot of other industries. It's my father... My father's a retired engineer, and he talked about how the engineering, especially here on the East Coast, was reluctant to get away from the suit and tie look until the end of his career in the 90s. And and it was really forced on them because of the young computer types, the Silicon Valley guys from the 80s, who were the ones that created the cubicle as opposed to the office, the, the casual Fridays in the workplace type thing. And he's often said, I don't know why we were stuck in that mindset in the engineering field, but we were. And sometimes maybe that held us back. I don't want to get any debates about dress codes at the workplace. (laughs) I have my own opinions on those. But at the same time, I think this is an example of a lot of other lines of work and other industries were very boxed in on how their mindset was. And, And 
it might have worked for that industry, but I don't think wrestling becomes wrestling if you don't have the diverse backgrounds that you had in the personalities involved. To, not to speak of another star we just lost, New Jack. You look at New Jack with all his justifiable homicides and bounty hunter background, and I'm sharing a locker room with him, and I have two college right next to AJ Styles, who's got, what, a couple years of college to... You see what I'm saying, right? Right, right. <laughs> you talk about a very, very diverse background. You know, you've got... AJ is a good old, a small town, conservative Christian kid from a small town in Georgia. A, a guy like me who's middle class, college educated guy. And then a guy like New Jack, who's from the ghettos of Atlanta. And we're all sharing the same locker room. What does that tell you? Right? Right. So after spending a year in Boston, Pat Patterson got a call from Vashon, who told him to go to o- Oregon, the other side of the country, and work for Don Owen. Now, the funny thing here is... Mad Dog Vashon did not ask Pat ahead of time. He's basically getting the call saying, go to Oregon, work for Don Owen. You know, this mm-hmm. wasn't asking permission beforehand. It was not unusual when you were early in your career back then. You just got told a promoter, hey, I don't, have, I don't have a place for you, but so-and-so across the country does, so have fun. <laughs> right, right. And Pat was kind of nervous, kind of scared, and he no-showed the tryout. And this angered Vashon, who called him again and threatened to beat the hell out of him if he did it again. Now, all you have to do is look at a picture of Maurice Mad Dog Vachon, and you can see why that would be scary. Well, what, what, what is not known by a lot of fans, Mad Dog Vachon, Maurice Vachon, on top just being like a, like a Harley-raised ballroom brawler tough guy and scary looking, he was also a legitimate like world-class amateur wrestler. <laughs> <laughs> so he could so, do both. <laughs> yeah, he could really mess you up. You did not want to cross Mad Mad. Ric Flair said in his autobiography, uh, he knew uh, Mad Dog Vashon and Wahoo McDaniel were the guys that he could think of that had the most stitches he saw without anesthetic. What does that tell you? <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they just they, they would just stitch up Chief. They would stitch up Mad Dog, and the guy like you know, I don't I don't need I don't need no painkillers. Just stitch up. I got to get on the road. <laughs> yeah. If you go back and you listen to our second episode where we talked to Susan Green about working the territories in the 70s, we, we discussed briefly with her, if you had a cross-country trek like that, it was not unusual because you weren't flying back then, you were driving cars or riding buses. It was not unusual if you were going from, say, Boston to, to, to Portland, where you the promoter of the territory you were leaving would say, but don't worry about it, you're going to get money. Because remember, you didn't have contracts at the time you were getting paid per night based on the gate they would essentially book you across the country so let's say pat leaves boston on a monday night he might have talked to i don't know dick goulas in memphis and he'd stop in evansville indiana on tuesday night and work the show in evansville and get a paycheck there and then he would have talked to somebody else he talked to someone on a vern and he he got booked in denver and he worked a night in denver on wednesday night Uh, basically working your way across till he got to does that make sense right right and the thing is, of course, Pat was young. He was very early in his career. He was not a shooter. Danny Hodge, he was not. So naturally, that just kind of terrified Pat that here's this big, strong, mean guy threatening him. So Pat and Louie moved to Oregon. They start working for Don Owen. And over the next few years, Pat would work in other territories as part of a talent exchange, which really was common in, the, in those days between the territories, right? Oh, exactly. Very much so. So Washington, Arizona, Texas, Oklahoma. Now, we were talking about the the stereotypes and employing homosexuals and people of color and all that earlier. This is about the time Pat would start 
using the effeminate stereotypes. He might wear lipstick. Right. He might have the Audrey Hepburn-style cigarette holder. Berets. He wore yeah. a beret a lot. Yeah, Louis kind of became the side act to kind of a valet of sorts. But he was doing this because he could see that it would get him heel heat. And right. that is one of those things, I'm going to try to use my words carefully because I don't want to sound like I'm being mean or talking down to anybody. This is the type of stuff that I think is kind of a generation thing. Like yes. people of the current generation or the younger generation probably just may not understand. And I'm not trying to degrade them or talk down to them. It's just it was a different time. This was a way that people would get heel heat, and things have changed since then. But it was just- this. You're talking. This is post the Gorgeous George era, right? With the bob, with the golden bobby pins, and the, and the very, very finely kept hair, and spraying the perfume around the ring. Ricky Starr was another star that predated this. Who was would be a cruiserweight by today's standards, who wrestled in ballet slippers and would do like ballet moves in between doing pirouettes and stuff in between doing wrestling moves. And this generated a lot of heel heat. Also, I think you need to understand, it wasn't like explicitly said, well, look, let's let's laugh at this gay man. Because he was wearing the beret and all this, this was also kind of a knock on, I'm not saying this is any better, but it it was also kind of a knock on his French-Canadian heritage. Right. You can talk about the national pride or whatever xenophobia the the french especially in that era were always kind of presented as less than macho and and so i I think it was more of a double entendre they didn't go out and explicitly say well this is a gay man they just said oh look at this guy and so that was just another layer to the character does that make sense yeah yeah that, that that makes sense and you could always say if you wanted to avoid the gay moniker because for whatever reason, packets say, well, I'm French-Canadian. Don't you know we wear berets? You see what I'm saying? Right. Go past Pat doing that and look at other stars that took it to the next level with that type of gimmick. You have the Aegean Streets and the Gold Dust. But yet they counteracted that by having very attractive females as their valets. Mm-hmm. So now you're really confused. Okay, this man is acting, quote-unquote, effeminate and in a, quote-unquote, stereotypical gay manner. But yet he's got this hot chick next to him. So the the lines get really gray after a while with that particular type of gimmick. Right, right. And I guess really the, the thing that's worth mentioning when going with gimmicks like this is clearly it worked because by the time Pat returned right. to Oregon full time, he was a bona fide main eventer. Sure. Once he came back to Oregon, he stopped using those gimmicks. He, he was more serious. He won several titles over the next few years and basically did all he could in that territory. Right. Uh, fellow wrestlers in Portland recommended that he seek out Roy Shire in San Francisco. This is the other big-time wrestling that we were talking about. One of, one of them. <laughs> right. But probably the biggest one based out of San Francisco. Right. Um, and in and, and this time period, we've talked about before, Portland was really, and Don Owen was the last territory in the territory days that just kind of gave up the ghost. But as big as Los Angeles was, and it had become huge because of John Tolos and and Freddie Blassie and Gorgeous George in the 50s, San Francisco always kind of remained like the crown jewel of wrestling on the West Coast. So if you were a West Coast-based guy or you were working a West Coast territory, San Francisco was as big a deal on the West Coast as going to New York and working for Vince Sr. was here on the East Coast. It meant you had fully made it. So since he did everything he could in Oregon, Pat did what was normally done when you're leaving a territory. He put over several other guys, kind of, as, they, as they say, do jobs. Mm-hmm. And one such loss was to a young Antonio Inoki, 
and another was a loser leaves town match to his rival at the time, Pepper Martin. And so after that, Pat and Louie, they packed their things and moved to San Francisco. Which we won't even begin to talk about how it's two gay men moving to San Francisco, and that's just <laughs> ironic. Right, right. So he gets hired by Roy Shire, and Shire told him that if he was going to be a top guy, he had to look the part and get his body into shape. Um, really, that I would think that would be kind of a common philosophy. We've, we've said it before. Guys have to look like they could win a fight in order to be taken seriously. Not, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they have to look like they're going to be on the cover of Muscle and Fitness. But when, when you see a guy who's got the, the extra pounds on him and not in a good way and just doesn't look very athletic, it's kind of hard to believe that he could win a fight. Now, obviously, there are exceptions. Dusty's probably the biggest one. But for the most part, you really do have to have a believable look to be a top guy. And Pat hated working out. But he took the I philosophy know, I, seriously. Yeah, and- I know this is a, that is a mentality that upsets a lot of current fans. But you need to accept the fact that at some level, wrestling has always been somewhat aesthetic. And so, yes, you're right. We wouldn't see the, the bodybuilder physiques come along until a few years later with first, of course, obviously, superstar Billy Graham. But then when you get into the 80s, you're getting into the Kerry Von Erichs, the Rick Roods, the Ultimate Warriors, Lex mm-hmm. Luger, the Road Warriors. But even in this era, you had to look, like you said, when you could win a fight. And it, wrestling has always been at a certain level an aesthetic and always will be. It is a form of acting. And let's be honest, people who are attractive often do better in Hollywood than people who are average looking. Don't get me wrong. I don't think Tom Hanks is ugly, but he's an average looking guy. But I think he's the exception. What are most of your Hollywood leading men stars? They're Matthew McConaughey, they're Brad Pitt, they're Denzel Washington, they're Tom Selleck. All handsome guys. Yeah, yeah, they're good-looking guys. Even a straight man like me can look at them and go, well, that's a good-looking guy, you know? (laughs) Hugh Jackman definitely fits that bill, as does Chris Hemsworth. Yes, exactly. There you go. Some of my female friends have commented that, that the most unattractive guy in the MCU is Paul Bettany. And when Paul Bettany's your ugliest guy, that's saying a lot. Because <laughs> Paul Bettany's a good-looking guy. Right. And you don't even really know that because you know, he's wearing the, the vision makeup. So you don't even really know what he looks like, right? So, right, right. <laughs> but, yeah, that's their whole point is that, like, these are heroes. These are, these are superheroes. And they cast everyone. I mean, even Tom Holland, who looks like a kid, you know, he's a good-looking kid. So if you make the analogy of wrestling to superheroes, well, there you go, right? <laughs> right, right, absolutely. And so that philosophy of looking the part to be a main eventer, Pat also passed that on for the generations after him, you know, well into his, his WWE stint. One of his first matches in San Francisco was at the legendary Cow Palace. Now, at this time, circa 1965, the Cow Palace was one of the premier venues in the country. It was like the, the Madison Square Garden of the West Coast, I think you'd call it, right? Yep, yep. That and then the keel, of course, in St. Louis. If you could wrestle one of those three, let alone all three, you had truly made it in wrestling in North America, you know? Right. Mm -hmm. Which I find funny because Madison Square Garden is not that big. The keel would get bigger because they would tear it down and build a new one. And the Cow Palace is exactly what it sounds like. It was originally built, my understanding, in in like the 20s or 30s. To be a building where they had livestock auctions. Think about it. There's a bay there. It's a naval town. Being born in Charleston, South Carolina myself, I understand that it it may not be so prevalent nowadays, but cities like that that had harbors, that's a big deal. They still are to this day because of shipping. Right. Now, Pat wrestled the legendary Red Bastine that night, and he impressed Red Bastine so much that Bastine sang Pat's praises backstage over how good he made him look. 
for younger fans, would you like to tell them how they probably would know Red Bastien more nowadays as like the two people he trained? One of the biggest names that Red Bastien trained would be Sting. And the other would be? Warrior. Who stinks tag 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 yes, exactly. Jim Helwick, yes. Yeah. Just so people know, I find it an interesting fact. Then we're talking about Pat. Before he passed away, Bobby Heenan said on multiple interviews, Red Bastine was the greatest baby face he ever saw wrestle, and that included Hulk Hogan. Think about that for a minute. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I was gonna I'll let that sink into our listeners for a few seconds before you move on, Seth. Right. Yeah, so Pat's got the Respect of the locker room now, effectively, because he got the glowing endorsement from from Red. Which is coming on the tail of an endorsement from from Mad Dog Vashon. Not too bad of guys to have your back in that era, I'm just saying. Right. One thing that big-time wrestling in San Francisco is known for, what Roy Shire would do, is he'd have an annual battle royal as mm-hmm. one of its main events. And this was the type of thing they would fly in some top people from other territories. It was like right. a, a big event. And you may notice a similarity here, folks, that this was an annual battle royal held in January. We'll get to that later. Yeah, that, that's a seed planted. So one year, uh, Shire wound up basically on the wrong end of a fight. That's probably the best way to simply put it. He, he, he did get beat up really bad and was out of commission. So Pat kind of stepped in and booked the battle royal. Uh, since he, by this time, had gotten Cloud as being one of the top guys, and Pat would then help. Roy booked the Battle Royal every, every year after. On the Roy Shire situation, I thought I'd make a comment real quick. You have to remember Roy was like a lot of promoters at the time. He was a former wrestler himself. And like a lot of wrestlers, we don't want to admit when we were past our prime. I think that's what happened. Yeah. Roy's, Roy's ego got the best of him. He wasn't as well young and as, as vibrant as he was as an in-ring competitor in the 40s and 50s and probably a bit off more than he can. That's just right. my opinion. I don't know. No, make no more about it. Roy Shire in his day was a, was a rough and tough can handle himself guy but what you can do in your 30s and what you can do in your 60s are worlds apart <laughs> right and eventually patterson did start teaming with ray stevens the duo adopted the name the blonde bombers which actually had previously been used by uh rip hawk and sweet hansen mm-hmm. first live show i ever went to was they were they were the main event but i digress <laughs> <laughs> now this began what was probably the biggest run in pat's career i think this is the one that the history books will probably remember most for as far as in ring is the, the the run with the blonde bombers, right? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. And I think they took the, that part of the, that name was Ray Stevens was using a knee drop from the top at the time, and he was calling it the bombs away knee. Drop. So, kind of made sense. You have to understand in this era, what was that? Well, when did they start first art teaming together? Sixty six, sixty seven, somewhere in there. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Late uh, mid to late sixties. Yeah, I, every era has that one two that all fans consider the best in-ring guy and his best in-ring competitor. In the 80s, that would be Flair and Steamboat. In mm-hmm. the 90s, that would be Sean Brett. In, in the 70s, that would probably have been Dory Jr. and Jack Briscoe. In the 60s, the two best guys in-ring, without question, were Ray Stevens and Pat Patterson. They were doing stuff nobody else was doing. And the, the famous Flair flip, where he hit the turnbuckle and flip over and then run the ring apron, he actually got that from Wahoo McDaniel, who actually got it from Ray Stevens. <laughs> Ray could take any kind of bump. So could Pat. They take these crazy bumps. They were coming off the top rope. And then on top of that, their psychology was sound. So this is an absolutely horrible analogy to make, but they were essentially the young bucks of their time. Mm-hmm. But remember, the young bucks, the, the Hardys were the young bucks before the young bucks. And the Rock and Roll Express and the Heart Foundation, the Bulldogs and the Midnights were before 
Edging Christian and the Hardys. I know a lot of old timers are like, how dare you compare Pat Patterson and Ray Stevens to the Young Bucks? I'm not comparing their in ring style. I'm comparing the way they're perceived by fans and their in ring athleticism, is I guess what I'm comparing. Does that make sense? But I'm not a Young Bucks fan, and I'm saying that. Okay, remember that. Right, so. right. I think it's one of those things that people would say when they think they know terms when they don't, is they'd probably use like the work rate or some, right, something to right. that to that uh, mm-hmm. caliber where, where it really just has to right. do with uh, how, how you are in the ring. But And um, I can tell you, you do learn a lot being in the ring with a guy who's better than you as your opponent. You can learn just as much by tagging with a guy who's better than you. And right. I think this is an example. Ray was a little older than, than Pat and a little more established, and this really, really helped Pat out a lot, become the worker that he was. So the Blonde Bombers won the tag titles, held them for the better part of two years. I think there was a point where they got beat and and won them back. But for essentially two years, they were the tag champions, and then Pat left to go on a tour of Japan. And now this goes back to putting over Antonio Inoki a few years earlier. I think that's what got his right. his Japan tour in the late 60s. Now, by right. the time Pat returned to San Francisco, Ray Stevens had turned babyface. So yep. that was the perfect way to continue that story. Instead of being the team, they had Pat essentially be the, the, the guy coming back expecting things to be the same, and Ray Stevens had turned babyface. So they started the feud. And um, I think we need to talk about some of the other stars in that territory at the time. Mm-hmm. You're looking at an era in San Francisco. Your top, other top guys were like High Chief Peter Maivia. I think Pedro Morales. I think I think Pedro uh, Morales. Morales might be around this. Yeah, yeah, I think he was Pepper Gomez. Uh, there's obviously being San, being in San Francisco and being West Coast based. There was a much like on the, on the East Coast with Vince's dad pushing the Italians and the Polish and these different ethnic heroes. That happened on the West Coast too. But the ethnic groups there were Asians, Pacific Islanders, African Americans, and really all those names that we just mentioned. How many of those names are Hall of Famers? Yeah. Uh, sadly, people don't know who, like, Duke Yamuka is. But I bet you who his son is, Pat Tanaka. Mm-hmm. You know, the so dime, you know, underrated. The, the or- Orient Express. The uh, yeah. Orient Express. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. I can't remember what was their – I think they were part of the Diamond Exchange when they were – with because Paul Diamond was his tag team partner. Of course, right. Vince put him under a mask and made him Asian. But right. they originally had their run in the AWA as the Diamond Express, which I think was, like – Diamond Dallas Page's interest. Di- Diamond Dallas Page it? was the manager, and I think they were just called Bad Company. Oh, I thought Bad Company was that was the Wrecking Crew. I'm sorry, I think Wayne yeah. Bloom and Mike Enos, but that, right. they were the Wrecking the Wrecking Crew or whatever. Yeah, the, the Destruction Crew, I think they were called, and they became the Beverly Brothers in in WWE in right. the 90s. So Vince takes two AWA tag teams and turns them into idiots instead of being badasses. But I digress. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. well, Pat was involved behind the scenes at the time, so but we'll get to that part of Pat's career <laughs> right. later. One more thing I want to bring up about San Francisco at that time. At this time, two things actually. Remember, folks that don't know, this is the era when Dave Meltzer started watching wrestling, and this was his home territory. Much like I grew up on, you know, the Four Horsemen. Era. This era we're talking about is the beginning of Dave Meltzer's fandom in the pro wrestling business. Also in this era, now not I don't think it was the late 60s, I think it was more the early 70s, but it's still all around the same time, there were two young, rough and tubble Samoan teenagers named Afa and Sika that were coming to shows because their their tribal leader High Chief was with the top babyface and they were known to beat up some of the heels, including I think Pat and and and, and Ray <laughs> at this point and they were like Teenagers beating up these tough grown men. And I think we all know where that led to with Afa and Sika. Right, <laughs> so. right. And and really for maybe 
any more modern listeners that we have out here who may not know, Sika is the father of Roman Reigns. Right. And, of course, their sister is, is Atta, and she is the mother of The Rock. So. Right. Mm-hmm. I think I've told the story before, but I'll tell it again, where there was a multitude of times that these two teenagers, and they, they weren't the only ones, they were just the leaders of the pack of these Samoans, had beaten up so many heels <laughs> that Roy Shire didn't know what to do, so he, he, he called Sam Mushnick in St. Louis, where the NWA was, was headquartered. And of course, San Francisco was an NWA affiliate and territory who would get the world champion on occasion. And say, look, we got these two really, really tough Samoan kids that are beating up my heels. Can you send me some help? And they sent everybody out there. I mean, they sent legitimate tough guys. They sent guys like Jack Briscoe. They sent guys like Dory and Terry Funk. Eventually, this led to Harley Race being sent out there. <laughs> I think I might even told this story in our Harley Race tribute. But Harley got there and worked a show, and they started their stuff after the show. And Harley, and I can imagine a young Harley Race doing this, looked at and like pointed one finger at off and one finger to sink and then did that come here with his finger and took him backstage. And it's not known what happened in these five, 10 minutes, but whatever happened when Harley came back out, Harley went directly to Roy Shires. You just got to smarten these kids up. I don't think I want to know what happened, but (laughs) suffice it to say, as tough as Pat Patterson and Ray Stevens were, they were two of the guys that caught the wrath of a young Afatsika because they were such good heels in the territory. <laughs> right. So in the feud that happened between Ray Stevens and Pat Patterson, Ray Stevens being the babyface, Pat Patterson being the heel, Pat started trying to claim that he was too handsome for his face to be seen by these fans. So he would start wearing a mask, even though everybody knew who he was. <laughs> What now, a great gimmick. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, because the mask wasn't there simply to conceal his face. It was a loaded mask, and he would deliver this devastating headbutt with a supposedly gimmicked mask, and that's how he would win his matches. That's like like simple psychology, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> right, right. I, absolutely. So they feuded over what was called, I believe, the United States title. It was not the same title that was recognized by WWE today. That goes back to the uh, Mid-Atlantic. Uh, Crockett's, United yeah. States, Right. But it was essentially the top title in the San Francisco territory. And once again, we've we said it before, but we'll remind everybody again, every every territory had its regional title. The touring world champion would come in and defend the world title against a top contender there in that, that territory. But every territory had its own regional title. And in San Francisco, it was their version of the U.S., just like it was here in the Carolinas. In Georgia, it was the Georgia National Champion. In Florida, it was the Florida Heavyweight Champion. In Texas, it was the Texas Heavyweight Champion. And I, I can't think. I'm, I'm, I'm pulling a blank on any other territory. The Southern Heavyweight Champion in Memphis. They each had right. their own regional. Right. Now, they have their feud. Stevens ultimately wins the title in a Texas death match. Not long after that, Ray leaves the territory to go work for Vern Gagne in the AWA. No, so turn. Ooh, what a Pat, change! That's a change, isn't it? <laughs> climate at least. But when Pat turned babyface, he did away with the mask, started kind of being more serious. He feuded with top heels like Lars Anderson and Ernie Ladd. Teamed with yes, a Lars fellow- Anderson was a Lars Anderson. For those that don't know, was uh, like the famous Anderson brothers. Before mm-hmm. Ole and Gene, there was Lars and Gene. You know, right. Ole would essentially replace Lars. Yeah. But anyways, I digress. And he teamed with a fellow babyface. We were talking about Offensika before. He f- teamed with fellow babyface Rocky Johnson to win the tag titles. Stevens would fly in on occasion to reform the team as a babyface team. And Patterson would return the favor by flying out to the AWA and reunite the team as heels over there. So mm-hmm. two guys essentially working two territories 
you know, at, at, at the same time in the 1960s, effectively. And so that was a, unusual at the time, to say the mm-hmm. least. Right. Now, during all this time, Patterson was helping Roy Shire book the territory in addition to being pushed as the top star. And Pat asked Roy for partial ownership because he was doing all this work and just he, he thought that it would be fair for him to at least have partial ownership in the company. Roy refused. Pat left the territory and moved to the other side of the continent to Florida, like we talked about before. And he worked for Eddie Graham, I want to say, for about a year. And remember, remember, ladies and gentlemen, this idea of homesteading and buying in a small percentage of the territory was fairly common at that time. Ole Anderson owned part of Georgia. The, Br- the Briscoes owned part of Georgia for a while. They're the ones who sold the vents when, on Black Saturday. You know? Yeah, and Harley owned part of the Minnesota Territory, I want to say. Uh, no, no, Harley owned, part of, um, Harley owned part of Kansas City. Okay. And, and, and Nick Bockwinkle owned part of Houston, even though he was based out of Minneapolis, which is why you would always see AWA title defenses in Houston shows as opposed to NWA titles. Paul Bosch didn't like dealing with the NWA anymore, but he won a world champions on his shows. So Nick bought into the territory and Nick owned part of the territory. Lance Russell owned part of Memphis, you know, the announcer. Lance owned uh, a couple of towns, was invested in a couple of towns, and the guys in that territory would say they weren't Memphis shows, but you knew that Lance was always going to be at those shows of the film crew because, well, Lance owned part of the sh- part of that ter- the territory in that town. So not unusual, <laughs> not unusual at all. So it wasn't like Pat was getting a big hit, I guess is what I'm trying to say, by asking Roy to buy in. Roy just wouldn't do it. Right. Now, Pat joined the AWA full-time in 1978, reunited with Ray Stevens as the Blonde Bombers, once again heels. This time they have a young Bobby Heenan as their manager, and they won the tag titles, held them for about six months. Actually, I I don't think they won them in a match. I think they were awarded them because... I think it was uh, the uh, the High Flyers had to vacate them because one of them got, got hurt. Can't high Flyers, of course, were Greg Gagne and Jim Brunzel. Right. So what better way for a heel to become champion, to be handed it rather than actually win it? Right, right. And uh, Pat, by this point, had learned English, obviously, because he'd been living in America for, what, 15 years at this point, almost 20 years. But he still, to the day he died, Pat, as we all know, spoke with a very heavy French-Canadian accent. But he still wasn't a bad promo, and Ray Stevens was a really good promo. And this blows my mind that you take guys that can talk like that and you give them Bobby Heenan, arguably one of the greatest talkers of all time. But, I mean, Mm -hmm. Bobby was to Minneapolis at the time kind of what Jimmy Hart would be in Memphis. It was like whether whether you needed a talker or not, he was was the top heel. Bobby Heenan was the top heel in the territory. Jamie Hart was the top heel in Memphis. You didn't – it wasn't a wrestler. It was a manager. So – Right, as Bobby would say in his own words, and we did a whole entire show on Bobby Heenan, so if you if you want to hear about him, we d- we did do a show on him, but he described himself as the crouton on the salad. No matter how right, good right. the salad is, you could have a little extra topping on it. Right. I've, I've heard the analogy, I think, that, that Stone Cold Steve Austin makes is salt and pepper on the steak. He, uh, he used that. The first time I think I heard him use it to describe it, he was describing one of our favorites, Boogie Woogie Man, Jimmy Valiant. He's like, yeah, that guy had a lot of salt and pepper on his steak. <laughs> <laughs> Right, you know, but it's, it, 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 I think the analogy said the crouton, the the sizzle, whatever. Yeah, I, right. Bobby was so much more than that. But but I digress. I don't think you and I need to sing Bobby our our feelings on Bobby Heenan anymore. So right. the following year, 1979, that's when Pat began working for Vincent J. McMahon and the World Wrestling Federation. And right. you know he ultimately would stay there for for the rest of his life. But he was still working AWA, 
and he was still occasionally going over to Japan. So he's effectively working three territories in the late seventies, mm-hmm. which was mm-hmm. that that that's impressive. That that shows how much of a draw he was. But I believe it was his departure as a full time competitor from the AWA that that led to the Nick Bockwinkel Ray Stevens tag team. Correct. I believe so, yeah, and, and Bobby was part of that act as well. Right, right. And once again, Nick's even better talker than Pat, so now you've got even... Once again, right. Why mm-hmm. is Bobby Heenan with Nick Bockwinkel and Ray Stevens? They don't need a mouthpiece. They can talk. But that was my understanding. This was around the same time, I think, that Nick had bought into Houston, like I was just talking about, and Nick just didn't want to be the world champion anymore. Isn't that the story you've always heard? I think so, yeah. And plus... We've heard the stories about that Nick could have been the NWA champion, but with the money he was making, he was content to take the, the smaller paycheck and stay closer to home. That's that's the way I heard it. Right. I just find that fascinating because if you think about this, this one move where Pat departs for the WWF, and we'll, we're getting ready to talk about this, it essentially puts Pat on a trajectory for the end of his career as a single star and brings Nick, who's been a single star for, what, 10 years at this point, down into a tag team. Two legitimate Hall of Famers, and it kind of changed their trajectory at the end of their careers. Pat's this guy who's been known for the bulk of his career as a tag team specialist, now moving into, into singles, and a guy who's been known as one of the greatest you know, singles champions of his era, moving into a tag team. Right. Kind of interesting. The ripple effect that sometimes happens in wrestling. Mm-hmm. You know, The first title Pat Patterson won in the World Wrestling Federation was the WWF North American title. And he defeated Ted DiBiase for it. And then he took that belt with him on one of the tours of New Japan Pro Wrestling. Again, going back to what we were talking about, putting over Noki. Much more famous, much more of a main eventer now. So he's uh, doing tours of Japan. And he's carrying a WWF belt on uh, in tow, which just helps. Now, it's a common misconception, I think, for a lot of fans. I think that they think that the North American title simply just kind of quietly became the Intercontinental title. And that, that's actually yeah. not true. Right. He, no, it's not. Yeah, he actually lost the title to there's Seiji Sakaguchi. I, I hope I'm saying that right. He Sinji lost Sakaguchi. Oh, okay. <laughs> but he lost that title, and New Japan, for whatever reason, just effectively just stopped using it. So Right. And New Japan had a working deal at the time with the WWF Vincent J. McMahon. So you, of course, remember the days, and some of our listeners will, when Ultimo Dragon came into the WCW as the J-Crown Cup. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, right. and he had, and he had, was it eight or nine belts, I think? Yeah. One of those belts was the WWF Junior Heavyweight Championship. <laughs> <laughs> so there were a lot of belts that WWF had that were only defended over in, in Japan, you know? So shortly after his return from Japan, this is when Pat famously won, quote unquote, the newly christened Intercontinental Championship in a fictitious Rio de Janeiro tournament. <laughs> so. Trying to keep up that image of of the World Wrestling Federation. Exactly. Which, let's be honest. The fact that they had a working deal with New Japan and they had some of their title belts being defended over there, they probably have a better argument than some of the other regional territories at the time, but saying that they were actually global. Right. This is a few years before World Class gets their their television into Israel and does tours over there. So I can't really think of any other promotion that was had that kind of reach. I mean, obviously. There were talent exchanges for years between Japan and, and, and Stu in Calgary. We had some Japanese guys here in the Carolinas, not many, but we had a few. There were some exchanges with the Mexican promotions down in the down around the, the Texas territories and stuff. But really, everybody wants to put everything on Vincent K. McMahon. His dad was sending belts and guys over to Japan. He had the working deal with Carlos down in, in Puerto Rico and the Caribbean. So, yeah, <laughs> he kind of mm-hmm. was more global before everybody else, wasn't he? Right, right, yeah, and... Even though he wasn't part of the NWA, 
he would still be sought out by NWA representatives for for advice. Oh, yeah, yeah. He, he I, I, I don't know if Speed Dial existed at the time, but I'm pretty sure Sam Muchnick had Vincent, K. McMahon, or Vincent J. McMahon on Speed Dial. That whole quasi shoot promo that Ric Flair said, and for 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 a better understanding, that it was your father who broke the tie for the vote for me to become world champion. That Ric Flair said, "That's true. That's a true mm-hmm. story." <laughs> right. It, it was his successful uh, appearances at Madison Square Garden that made Vincent J. McMahon say, "Oh, there's a tie. Yeah, give it to the Flair kid. He's re- he's ready." That's how well respected he was. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. At the time, the reason the the Intercontinental Title was made was it was actually made to give. Pat Heat because he was feuding with Bob mm-hmm. Backlund. That's uh, correct. Yeah. You know, you often hear the moniker that, that has always been tagged with the Intercontinental title. It's the belt for the worker. Even right. back when I was watching uh, as a teenager, I was able to understand it. Hulk Hogan was the world champion, but yet the IC title was going to guys like Kurt Hennig and... Rick well, Rude, right. Ricky Steamboat, Randy Savage, guys like mm-hmm. that. Guys that, that had, they, they, they could lace up the working boots and go. Right. So, you know, it, it was essentially you practically got better matches out of the IC guys. And that's not a knock on Hogan. It's just sooner or later we'll talk that's, about Hogan and how he did his thing. But but it, it was just that's kind of how it was. And, and I think this begins with the very first champion being Pat. Mm-hmm. Not that Bob was bad. Bob obviously was a great technical wrestler and had the had the very legitimate amateur background. But in the world of professional wrestling and blurring that line between being entertaining and technical and believable, Pat blurred that line much better than Bob Backlund. Think, don't you? Yeah, yeah, I can I can see that. So the, I think that from the very inception of that title, whatever no matter what the reason was why they chose to create it and put it on Pat. That was established right away with Pat as the first champion. So obviously he did not win the WWF title off of Bob Backlund, but they definitely drew. They oh, did yeah. uh, pack in a, a lot of fans into Madison Square Garden for that one. I, I, th- I think Bob gets a bad rap because he was the champion for so long, and there obviously were diminished returns when he finally dropped the title to Sheik, which of course we know was just transitional because the whole plan was to put it on Hogan. But uh, make no bones about it. Go back and look at some of those numbers. Bob has uh, several very, very successful feuds where he drew and sold mm-hmm. out Madison Square Garden. Greg Valentine and him had a legendary feud. Him and Pat had a legendary feud. Bob drew. Don't don't make any any bones. I understand he was not as exciting as Hogan or superstar Billy Graham, who were really the two bookend champions in between his five year run. But he was just a different kind of wrestler than both those. But that didn't diminish that he drew. And mm-hmm. I, I think you, I think all the research you've done in all our shows has kind of bore that out, hasn't it? Bob, Bob's run was not that bad, was it? Right, right. And remember, at that time, the idea of a babyface manager was not a foreign one because he had Ar- Arnold Scolden with him who had sure also did. managed Bruno. So there was already an established talker that could do things. And right, right. I'm, I'm not saying there should be babyface managers, but it, 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 I think it seems to be kind of a lost art. These days, babyface managers are valets. Yeah, but on top of on top of Bob being a babyface champion, it's just look at Bob and his personality, and we wouldn't see the the insanity would come years later with the presidential run and that stuff in the nineties. Mm-hmm. But Bob was so diametrically different than all the other champions. Whether you're because you look at the NWA guys at that time, this is this is Ric Flair, Dusty Rhodes, Harley Race, Terry Funk. These are charismatic guys. You look at the WWF. This is Hogan. It's superstar Billy Graham, the Iron Sheik. 
You look at the AWA, it's it, it's guys like Nick Bockwinkle. Oh, what does Bob have anything to do with like any of those guys as far right. as personality goes? Probably the closest personality-wise to Bob at that time that would have been a world champion, what, but Dory Jr. maybe? Maybe, yeah, yeah. He he wasn't the type that talked smack or had the character right. and such. He he seemed like he was the hard-working American boy type vibe. That's what mm. he was trying to achieve. Right, and, and you got to remember Dory's run with the title was 10 years before Bob's, and it was a different promotion. It was a different promotions title. So I can see why Pat and Bob drew because Pat just brought – back to that salt and pepper, the crouton, the sizzle, whatever. Pat probably brought that to that feud. You know what? Mm-hmm. It reminds me before what we talked about when we talked about the Ultimate Warriors run with the title, with the world title, Ronnie Garvin's run with the NWA title, is that it's, they're often looked down on, but they, that's partly on the promotion because they didn't give them a good dance partners. This is an example here with Backlund, Vince Sr. understanding that Bob was really good and he worked well in a certain role, but he needed the right kind of opponent to draw. Well, this is why he was paired with people like Greg Valentine and Don Morocco and Pat Patterson, because these guys could bring the, the sizzle. Right. And from this moment on, I mean, again, while he didn't win the title, he lost the IC title shortly after this. Pat never formally left the WWF. There were times after he retired from in-ring, and we'll, we'll probably get to a little bit of that. But this is also around the time he had that famous feud with Sergeant Slaughter, right, with like the boot camp match and such. Oh yeah, and for the I I believe I don't know if that is you know, with the, with with them slowly moving all the stuff that was on the network over to Peacock. If you don't have a VPN, which I don't, I have to watch my stuff through Peacock now. For a long time though, that what that particular match, which is in Madison Square Garden, was on the network, and I believe the announcers are Monsoon and Lord Al Hayes. I think, if I remember right, if you believe that the WWF couldn't get down and dirty and have those blood-type feuds like Memphis and the Carolinas were, f- were famous for, go watch that boot camp match between Pat Patterson and Sergeant Slaughter. And this, of course, would be the end of Slaughter in the territory. The blow-off to that feud is what led to Sarge coming here to the Carolinas and having his run with the recently lost Don Cronodal with the tag team belts. And we, we talked on our first episode about how their feud with, with Steamboat and Youngblood Selling out the Greensboro Coliseum in the summer of 1983 is what made Crockett realize, oh, wow, I can do Starcade. I can actually fill this building up. So Pat's not directly related to a lot of historical moments in wrestling. If he's not directly, he's almost indirectly related to a lot of them because I just gave you the, the line to follow there. It's Pat's successful with Sarge, with Sarge losing the eventual feud that leads to Sarge coming here to the Carolinas. And Sarge's run here in the Carolinas essentially leads to Starcade. So you I, you can follow the bouncing ball there, can't you? Yeah, absolutely. And after that feud, this is around the time Pat started transitioning from in-ring competitor to backstage worker. He helped with booking. He worked in talent relations, which is what Jim Ross and John Laurinaitis did. You know, helped and and, and uh, J.J. Dillon before Jim Ross. <laughs> mm-hmm, right. And he helped with Vince's financial business decisions. We were talking about the Cow Palace Battle Royal. Uh, in the 60s and how it was in January. Well, it was that Battle Royal concept. That's what kind of inspired Pat to invent the Royal Rumble concept. And that's why the Royal Rumble was in January is because the Battle Royals that Pat helped book in San Francisco mm-hmm. were in January. Yeah, I mean, he, it, it's like we talked about. It wasn't successful, but Bust, Dusty brought that bunkhouse stampede concept here to the Carolinas in the 80s. Well, bunkhouse stampede was a fairly regular thing they did down in Florida where Dusty cut his teeth. So guys in wrestling that become creative 
often go back to what worked when they were in-ring competitors. Well, Pat knew that the, that this this annual Battle Royal in January, well, that was the biggest show San Francisco had every year. Biggest show. So Vince is looking to expand his pay-per-view footprint. He's looking for uh, let's we've got we've got WrestleMania in in the spring. Let's have one in the winter. Pat's yeah hey let's let, let, January. <laughs> yeah, and the first Royal Rumble. I, I think there was talk about doing it on pay per view, but they couldn't. They did it on USA because I think the first right. winner was a Junkyard Dog or Duggan, wasn't it? Uh, it was. It was Duggan. Yeah, Duggan won the first one, and that was in 1988. And it, I think it was counter programming. I want to say to like a Clash of Champions or something like that. Yeah, well, I think we've talked about it before, but essentially, essentially, this was the 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 pay, it was the pay per view companies, the cable companies that had to step in and between Crockett and Vince and go enough. You're costing us money now. You guys are going to stop this pissing contest. Mm-hmm. But there was that time when there was all this programming, counter-programming between big shows, which led to the the creation of Clash of the Champions. It led to the creation, like we said, of Royal Rumble. And and Pat's, he's a major player in all this right now because he's involved in the creative end with Vince's counter-programming pro- or sometimes counter-programming. Yep, yep. So uh, for me personally, my, my first memories of Pat Patterson were not as an in-ring competitor. I had read about him in the Aftermag, but he was a little bit before the tape trading era when I was t- trading tapes. So my first memories of Pat were as an announcer. I, I'm sure you probably don't remember those days, but you've seen the, the tape of him since then, haven't you? Yeah, he would do interview segments. I think they were right. meant for French-speaking audiences in, in Canada, but he would do uh, host segments kind of similar to the talk show segments that like Brother Love and such would would do in, in, in the 80s and 90s. He had but his I mean, own... Pat- but he did it like he did, he did it on the straight. He didn't do it a character like like Bruce did with Doctor right. with, with Brother Love. He was a good looking guy who was a former champion, and he wear the suit and he wear the corporate little blazer. You know, had the WWF logo on it. I thought he did a good job. Did yeah, yeah. And but usually the ones that I had seen, he would speak in French and then do the translation for whoever he was talking to. Right. Once again, I think ahead of its time, we know now that Vince is proudly shows you all the different international feeds they have for his pay-per-views and will quickly introduce all the announced teams. It looks like Pat was starting that long beforehand. Yeah, yeah. And I think Pedro was doing the same thing for the Spanish-speaking audience around the same time, wasn't he? I thought if we brought that up in, in, our, in our tribute to Pedro Morales, but I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. Yeah, he did a, He did a lot for the, uh, the, the Spanish programming. And I think Ray Rougeau, I think, later did stuff for, for uh, French-speaking TV as well. He wants to get another French Canadian, right? <laughs> right. And we all know that that part of Canada and Pat being with the company and we, Dino Bravo, who's probably yet another guy we, we will cover at some point, and say the Rougeaus, that was always a pretty strong market for Vince when he mm-hmm. decided his national expansion, right. the French speaking Canadian side. Again, through the 80s, we were talking about all this backstage stuff, but really we were talking about the elephant in the room at the beginning of the, the episode. Well, this is kind of another elephant that we have to discuss. Some, somewhere in, in the late 80s, there was a scandal involving uh, young men that would help with the ring crew and such. And I really wasn't watching much at the time. Uh, and I, and I, I've done some research on this, but I think you can probably explain it better than I can. Yeah, there was allegations made by some of the ring boys that they had had sexual advances made to them by some of the adult employees of the company. I, I can't remember exactly. I haven't, I haven't really delved into this much. I can't remember if Pat was directly implicated or not. I know some others were, but the ultimate fallout to this scandal was, and I think it was one of those things that Vince wanted to do some PR work, a spin doctorate just to make it go away. He fired Pat over it. 
And, and I've always felt on what little I know about the situation, Pat probably was not involved. Pat was known to say things that could make people uncomfortable, but I don't think Pat meant anything by it. I think right. Pat was just a guy as a gay man who lived in a time when having a gay partner like that was not the normal. This is long before gay marriage, ladies and gentlemen. So with that being said, he didn't sometimes I do that. I get on you about doing that, Seth. I, you'll being a big wrestling fan, you'll you'll use wrestling insider terms sometimes, and I'll be like, Seth, don't do that. People don't mm-hmm. know what that means. <laughs> and my also my understanding, you said you had told me this off mic that when Pat sensed an individual being uncomfortable, he would realize, oh, I shouldn't say that around them, and he would stop. Right, and he would right. apologize to them. Yeah, I heard something to that effect. Like he might flirt with somebody as a joke, as a gag, but if they were uncomfortable with that, he would back off. He, he, he and he would apologize. Like yeah, he, yeah, yeah. But I, I think ultimately on the Ring Boy scandal, which was right before the steroid trial of the early '90s, I think Pat was an easy mark to use a wrestling term. He was a, a gay man. Like I said, it was the worst kept secret in the business. Most people knew that Pat was gay. Pat was loyal. And basically, I this is what I think happened. And this is complete speculation on my part, ladies and gentlemen. Behind closed doors, Vince went with Pat and said, somebody has to take the fall for this or it's going to bring the company down. You are really easy to do that. I, I, I hate to even ask you to do that, Pat, but I will bring you back. Have no fear. But I need you to fall on the sword for the company. And because I think another term you hear a lot because of his years with Vince was loyal. I think that's what happened. Do you have any, any thoughts on your speculation of what might have happened there? No. Or if my ideas make sense to you? Yeah, it's, it's the one that makes the most sense, yeah. Because my understanding is if Vince likes you and Vince respects you, he takes care of you, period. Mm-hmm. And I think that's exactly what happened. I think he went to Pat and said, Pat, I need a scapegoat. You're the easiest scapegoat. You're gay. Everybody knows you're gay. You've, you've said some things that have made some people uncomfortable. We understand you didn't mean anything by it, and you apologize, and it's cool. But we're talking about people outside of the wrestling and their perception of. It. So please, I hate to ask you this, but fall on the sword. And Pat did. And Vince, too, like you said, to his word, wasn't what? A couple years later, Pat was back with the company. Right, right. Well, he would probably would have put it around uh, ninety or ninety-one, I no, guess. Ball, ballpark. 90, figure, 90, right? 90, could 90, be run. Ninety, ninety-one. Yeah, because I, mean, I think it was like he officially was fired like eighty, late eighty-eight, early eighty-nine. And this is this is also when we're talking about the time frame. This is a crucial time for the company. This is right when Crockett, their main competitor, sells to Turner. So interesting time to lose your right-hand man is, I guess, guess my point. So, But anyways. But Pat, since it became, for many, many years, he was looked at as being Vince's right-hand man. And I think it was Pat that could probably talk Vince one way or another as far as which decision to make. And really, just about any talent, I think, that worked for WWE in any long-term capacity probably has a Pat Patterson story. I think that's probably safe to say. Right. Well, of course, in the late 80s, Bruce Pritchard comes coming from Houston, and Cornette has said many times on his podcast that it, it, when he, by the time he got to the company, it, it was a one word. It wasn't like two words, one word, Pat and Bruce, Bruce and Pat. <laughs> yeah. It's like everybody knew that Bruce and Pat had Vince's ear. They were his his go-to guys. And, and that Cornette has said that's literally how it was. It wasn't Bruce and Pat or Pat and Bruce. It was one word, Bruce and Pat. <laughs> So, you know. I remember Edge and Christian, I think, talking about Pat Patterson. This was a couple of years ago when he was uh, obviously still with mm-hmm. us, but they were talking about how they, they were putting together this match in there and they thought this is going to be this great idea. It's going to, oh man, it's going to be awesome. And then they go and tell Pat Patterson the idea. And they didn't say what it was, but he said Pat would basically just shoot down their thoughts with like five words 
And then also <laughs> with a way that was totally logical where they could understand why what they were thinking mm-hmm. of was stupid. <laughs> so that's, right, just, right. that's just how Pat was. Well, I think about Pat in this era when he's heavily involved with the creative. We talked earlier about him doing the effeminate gimmick when he first got in the business with the beret, which was exacerbated by, the, by his heavy French-Canadian accent. I, I think about, well, they turned Rick Martel into a heel and put him almost in the same gimmick. You don't think Pat had something to do with that? <laughs> right. And they played on this idea of his, with his heavy. And it's just, I'm sitting here and I'm seeing these parallels here. There's Pat's a good looking guy who, unless he acts effeminate or quote unquote stereotypically gay, you're going to think he's straight. But then he opens his mouth and he has that French Canadian accent. So then he starts, he starts playing on that. Mm-hmm. Same thing with Martel. Martel's this long running baby face, good looking guy, great body. The girls loved him. Then he opened mm-hmm. his mouth. And, oh, he kind of has this French Canadian accent. Well, mm-hmm. Rick was in need of a change. He was needed, as Jim Ross would say, a fresh coat of paint. Learn a right. new hole, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm sure this is an idea swinging around because Rick was in very good graces with the company at the time. This is probably one of these times where Pat goes to Vince. Remember back when I started, I wore the beret and the cigarette holder and all this stuff, and 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 we played on my on my French Canadian heritage. Vince, like, ah, brilliant, pal. I can I can hear that I can hear that conversation in my head. Can't you? <laughs> mm-hmm. That was just selling Rick Martell on it, and I'm sure, like you just told that Edgy Christian story, it wasn't hard for Pat to sell Rick Martell on the, the whole idea. Right, right. A good example, I think, of Rick Martell was there, there was some, I think it was when Tatanka was on his way up, and mm-hmm. they were doing some sort of uh, Native American tribal dance type thing, kind of kind of to honor him or honor the uh, the you tribe about the or famous something like that. With, with Wahoo McDaniel and, 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 and Trombo passing the torch on to him, that uh, one? It might have been, and then and then like Rick Martel's whole thing is he just waves and says, "Oh, look at these Indians! They have no class. They have no sense of fashion or style or anything like that." Yeah, you know, yeah, it's just so <laughs> derogatory and, and like xenophobic and all. Yeah, it's horrible. Mm, but, yeah, but I I totally can see Pat behind the curtain with Martel going, "Okay, you need to say this and say it this way." And my understanding is Pat was never a guy because Pat struggled with it. it was, English was a second language to him. Pat is one of those guys, my understanding, talking to guys that have dealt with Pat when they were in the WWE, Pat was one of those guys that is the absolute best to have as a creative guy to work with in the business. I can say this as a former talent myself. He's not the guy that's going to tell you what to say. He's going to tell you how you should say it and can encourage you to do it in your own words. He knows the overall idea of what's going to work and what's going to get heat or get the response that you want. But he would never he would never say, now do it exactly this way. He would right. say, here's what you're going to try to do. Now t- tell me how you would say that. Oh, that's good, but how about if you try changing this a little bit? He would work with you to where it was you. Does that make right. sense? Make I it mean, your own type thing. Do it your own yeah, style. Yeah. Your right. own, your own uh, sizzle, your own salt and pepper. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's now very well known that Pat loved karaoke, and he did a really great rendition of, of, of Frank Sinatra's My Way, which, of course, is also famously covered by Elvis and Sid Vicious and the Sex Pistols. Mm-hmm. But he did it in the style of Sinatra. And when you look at Pat's life, you look at his career, you look at how he approached teaching these guys, I don't think he could sum up Pat Patterson more than he did it his way. Exactly, yeah. When he passed, just about every wrestler or booker or whatever – put out some sort of tweet about Pat Patterson and how much he might have helped them in such a short time. I mean, Pat Patterson is, is 
let's be honest. Dwayne Johnson's charisma and natural abilities shown through, and we're going to come through regardless. Pat Patterson, though, essentially created the rock. He really did. He's the guy that Vince sent down to Florida to scout out this young son of Rocky Johnson who played college football but didn't make it in the NFL but was trained to wrestle trained to wrestle by his dad. This is the guy Vince sends down to look at him is Pat. Pat watches him work out with a couple of local guys down there in Florida, gets back to his hotel, calls Vince, and Vince is like, what do you think, pal? And Pat tells him, you want this kid yesterday. Pat saw the ability right then. Right. And more than just the in-ring ability that Rock had, the charisma, the personality. And then as we saw the maturation and the development of Rocky Maivia, the blue chipper, to what would become The Rock, Pat's integral in all of that. Pat is integral in all of, he's the one, and Rock Rock has said this on many occasions, he's the one that would be with him working on his promos. He'd be the one, Stone Cold's talked about, all those great finishes that Stone Cold had in his run. Pat was involved in it. I, I would dare say any finished to a, rest, to, a, to a big match on a pay-per-view or a big show from the mid-'80s through the Attitude Era in the WWE that you really enjoyed, it has Pat Patterson's thumbprints. I, I, don't, I can't verify this, but I'm almost 100% sure he was involved in that whole idea, which I still think is one of the best angles in wrestling with the evil twin referee with the Hepners. Mm-hmm. Oh, with DBS. I'm sure he was involved in that. It is not hard to believe when when you when you hear the history that we just gave about how he would wear a mask just so he could hide a foreign object as a heel. <laughs> this is <laughs> not out of the, that kind of thinking wasn't out of that. the Royal Rumble mm-hmm. and how those were booked and and and, and how how dramatic and. I know I don't have to sell you on Battle Royals, Seth. I know you're a right. big mark for Battle Royals. Right. You know, and, and, and Pat booked most of the Battle Royal Rumbles, and Royal Rumbles are often booked in a way. It made Ric Flair. Mm-hmm. That made Ric Flair in that company. Yeah, and there's always that thing that seems to happen just about every year with Royal Rumble, and we would do it over on Wrestling Brethren when we do our predictions for a Royal Rumble. It's like, okay, who's going to last the longest? Who's going to have the most eliminations? Because there's always that guy that has that dominating moment where he just clears the ring. There's the guy that is just kind of in there for comedy. And then there's kind of the, okay, who's going to come in first and who's going to come in last. I think those are all things that Pat would consider. And as of late, it's been the, what crazy thing is Kofi going to do to avoid being eliminated this year? (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) And that's been, that's going on for about what, 10, 12 years now. Kofi's been doing that. So, yeah. yeah, But I think a lot of this goes back to Pat. The thing that was cool about the battle Royal in San Francisco being in January, if it was booked properly, you could have stories with inside the main story that you could spin off for, for angles that you ran for the whole calendar year. Absolutely, yeah. And and this is exactly what Vince does with the Royal Rumble. I think the, the thing to me that speaks the most, the strongest, about how important Pat Patterson was to the product that Vince McMahon put on television, Pat's health fa- started to fade, and he really only became like an advisor with dropping every once in a while. About what, 2010, 2012? Is that about right? That Sounds about right, heard? yeah. Well, as a fan, let me ask you, when did the quality of product, the intelligence in angles, and the finishes be, begin to be a little bit less of what they had been for years at WWE? Around the same time Pat stopped being there on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. Think about that. All right, so that's going to wind it up here for this edition of Classic Wrestling Memories. And, and I know we went about probably almost an hour and a half here, but there's probably so much more we could talk about certainly just alone in the the backstage stuff yeah i don't think we can iterate enough mm-hmm. 
Pat Patterson, we, we've talked about it with when we talked about Dusty. And there was so much more to Dusty than just as an in-ring guy. We will talk about Jim Crockett Jr. Because, unfortunately, we lost him recently. He's on the slate, ladies and gentlemen, as well. I've said it about my, my tribute to Jim, Jim Crockett Jr. He legitimately was one of the ten most important people in the history of wrestling in the modern era. Pat Patterson is on that list, too. When you take a look at his whole body of work, from in-ring as a competitor to behind-the-scenes stuff, ideas he came up with, I don't think it's a stretch to say that he is legitimately, if you're talking the modern era, so from the mid-'70s on to today, Pat Patterson is definitely in that list of 10 most important guys. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And we say it every so often when we, we talk about how, I think it was David Crockett, it might have been Jim Jr., but I think it was one of the Crockett's that talked about how there's four things you can have in the wrestling industry, and you if you have three out of the four, you'll be successful. And of course, that was charisma, look, ability in the ring, and then the knowledge of the business. Pat definitely had all four of those. Pat had all four. Yeah. Pat had all four. <laughs> he was probably so good in some of them, you could say he had five or six out of the four. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, Pat, Pat was one of those rare guys in the business. He checked all the boxes. Mm-hmm. He was a good-looking guy who looked like he could win a fight, was a good athlete, his, his matches made sense. And he had a, a, a mind for the business. And the thing that doesn't get stressed enough by fans, because they don't understand because they haven't been in the business, and I can speak to this having been a competitor, and you brought it up earlier. You'd like to tell that famous story, Seth, of how Eddie Graham can watch a guy lace up his boots and figure out who to put him with in the ring. Pat had those same type cues. That is a skill behind the scenes even more so than in, in front of the camera. People don't understand how it was important in wrestling, and Pat Patterson had it. He had an ability to communicate with people in a way that wouldn't offend them, that they would understand, that the message got across, and in a way that that not only did they understand it, in a way that motivated them to go out and then do it in front of the camera. And that skill is so vitally important if you want to be involved in the booking end or the creative end of wrestling. And Pat had that as good or better than anybody who's ever done it. I don't think I can add to that uh, anymore so. That will wrap up this edition of Classic Wrestling Memories. If you liked what you heard, we are on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever podcasts can be found. ClassicWrestlingMemories.com is the website. You can also find us on the social media. You can look on Facebook uh, for Classic Wrestling Memories. We'll, we'll be there. And give us a review. Uh, let us know what, what, what we're doing well. Let us know what we could be improving on because once again we want to know what you folks want to hear the really the only rules that uh, i make about feedback is obviously be honest tell us what you really think and the other is if you have suggestions we really the end of wcw is kind of the cutoff point basically before 2001 anything's fair game anything after that we kind of consider that uh too modern to be called classic what do I say? Attitude Era and back, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Attitude Era is probably the latest. All right. And so, Train, if anybody wants to talk to you about wrestling or Pat Patterson or video games, where can they find you? I'm always available on Twitter at CrazyTrain underscore JB. That is pretty much my handle across all social media platforms that I'm have that I'm subscribed to. I don't check the others as often as Twitter and Facebook, but those are the, if you do a search and you put in crazy train underscore JB, more than likely a picture of me wrestling will pop up. So anyways, all right, right, we're going to shut down the power here in the studios. We'll be preparing our next classic wrestling memories. We're also of course, part of Geekville radio where you can find our shows there for non-wrestling shows. And we'll talk to you folks again next time. 
Classic Wrestling Memories as part of the A1-Wrestling.com podcast family and can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com and at A1-Wrestling.com. The views expressed by the hosts and guests are purely their own and do not reflect the views of A1-Wrestling.com, any of its affiliates, or sponsors. Some media used in ClassicWrestlingMemories.com is the copyright of its respective owners, all rights reserved. Mr. Patterson, what happens to the North American title if, in fact, you are the Intercontinental Champion? Well, let me tell you something. First of all, the Intercontinental Champion represents a lot of money and a lot of prestige and represents a lot more prestige than the world's championship belt because you know why? To win that championship, I had to beat 15 of the best wrestlers in the world in the tournament, and I came out on top. So I don't care who the world's champion is, I am the intercontinental champion, and I'm the best in the world today. Now, as far as the North American championship belt is concerned, I really don't care what happens to it. Because now, I'm up to bigger things. They'll probably have a tournament or something. I really don't care. Now I'm up to bigger things. You're looking right now on your television screen at one of the best wrestlers in the world today, Pat Patterson, the new Intercontinental Champion. Now how do you like that to see me on your television screen? We thank you for your time, the Grand Wizard and Pat Patterson. Before we go, they tell me you have a lot of class. Why don't you shake my hand right, and congratulate, congratulate me? Both. Congratulations. Well, thank, thank you. Thank you very Matt much. Matt Patterson and the Grand Wizard. We shall return with more wrestling action in just a moment.